Hello everybody, and welcome back to the History of Fresh Produce, the podcast series that explores the fascinating and often overlooked history of fresh fruits and vegetables. Here are your hosts, Patrick Kelly and John Park. Hello everybody and welcome back to the History of Fresh Produce. Uh, today, uh, we are without Patrick. He had to uh, cater to something, but uh, we are joined by a special guest today. Um, we have Lois Ellen Frank, native his- foods historian, a culinary anthropologist, educator, James Beard award-winning cookbook author, photographer, chef and owner of Red Mesa Cuisine, a Native American catering company, as well as Walter, who will join us in the second part of this episode, Walter Whitewater, who's from the Navajo Nation. He's also chef at the Red Mesa Cuisine and in the winner of the James Lewis Award in 2008 from BCA Global for his work as a Native chef. Uh, We're very fortunate to have both of these guests here today. We're going to be talking a bit about the Native foods of North America, well, the Americas, and uh, Lois had reached out to Patrick and I and sent us her beautiful book called Sea to Plate, Soil to Sky. Definitely encourage all of you to pick that up and read it. We're going to be covering a lot of what is uh, mentioned in that book today, and we'll be sure to leave uh, notes in the comments of this episode of where you can pick up that book. But I'm not going to keep Lois waiting any longer. Welcome, Lois, to the History of Fresh Produce. Thank you. It's an honor to be here, and uh, I'm very excited. Thanks. No, thank you for being here. Uh, it's a fascinating subject, which I think you know a lot of our listeners probably don't know too much about. It's not a history um, that you hear much about. I mean, every you know, I, I won't say everybody, but a lot of people obviously know histories about potatoes and kind of the very staple kind of crops. But uh, that said, there are a lot of staples from the native cuisine. Uh, that people may not realize are native to this area and to the indigenous peoples that were here well before the Europeans landed on this continent. So I think a very interesting place to start would be talking about what you refer to as the magic eight. I know before I started reading your book, that was not um, a terminology I'd heard before. So uh, why don't you explain to us what the magic eight are and how the they're significant to the Native American peoples. So that it's really interesting because originally I wanted to call the cookbook the Magic Eight. And like you, my publisher said, no one's going to know what you're talking about. So we changed the name, but in it is the introduction is about the Magic Eight. And the Magic Eight are eight ingredients that Native people gave to the world. And none of these ingredients existed anywhere outside of the Americas until after 1492. So when we deconstruct that, it's fascinating because the magic eight are corn, beans, and squash. So that they're also considered or uh, thought of as the three sisters. Mm. And so corn, beans, squash, and then there's chili, tomato, potato, vanilla, and cacao. And if we deconstruct that, that means that the Italians did not have the tomato. It's a native gift. The Irish did not have the potato. Britain had fish and no chips. There were no chilies in any Asian cuisine, East Indian cuisine, 
African cuisine, Greek cuisine. There were no chilies in any cuisines anywhere in the world. And then areas where we think of as, oh, just famous and delectable for their use of vanilla and chocolate, like France and Belgium and Sweden. I mean, Switzerland, you know, you think of, of, of chocolate, they did not have access to either uh, vanilla or cacao. So Europe and other parts of the world were completely different until uh, and while we no longer credit Columbus with um, discovering America, we do credit Columbus with facilitating what we call the Columbian exchange. Mm -hmm. So though, because he was traveling back and forth, he was bringing ingredients from Europe and the old world or other parts of the world here to the Americas and ingredients, including the magic eight from the Americas to Europe and other parts of the world. So there, that's called the Columbian Exchange. And uh, uh, you know, a lot of food historians say that 1491, 1492, 1493 are the years that the world began in terms of food because so much happened so quickly and so rapidly, changing cuisines and cultures all over the world in a relatively short amount of time. Yeah, it's definitely something that we have talked about many times already on our show about the significance of that year, 1492, where, like you say, there was a massive exchange of foodstuffs and not even foodstuffs, but also animals and other materials. So right. definitely significant. And yes, that definitely gives context as to why you call it the magic age. So like you say, I mean, these, these crops that you all listed off are so um, embedded in the cultures of so many different nations say that we've Many people around the world tend to forget that they originated elsewhere. Here, and, yeah, <laughs> and you know we don't ever undo history. History happened; it's real. Whether it's painful or unpainful to look at those historical events and how they evolved, uh, it, it is real and it did happen. So, I, I think for me personally, both as an academic with a PhD in culinary anthropology and a chef and an author. Uh, and the author of this new cookbook, I what I want to do is just differentiate the time periods, what happened and delineate so that people can educate themselves and understand uh, historically what happened as opposed to trying un to undo it or, you know, it's, it's really interesting because, um, you know, when we look at native cuisine, what affected and changed Native American cuisine and the biggest and most profound are the domesticated animals and their byproducts which exactly. didn't come from here. So exactly. pork, beef, sheep, chickens, goats, you know, uh, and their byproducts. Um, Native people hunted wild game. Did they at one point in time try and milk a lactating, you know, 1,500 to 2,000 pound bison? Yeah, maybe once. Maybe, yep. <laughs> <laughs> but then, you know, uh, none of that, uh, you can't, a wild animal is not going to let you get close enough to do that. Exactly. Really. Exactly. So, you know, um, I think wheat and wine grapes also affected uh, this region. Um, although at least here in the Southwest, those ingredients were introduced by the Spanish, not originally for food, but for the forced uh, conversion into Catholicism of the indigenous people. So the right. same way, you know, Spain uh, had the Inquisition, 1492 and expelled the Jews. Uh, so you could leave, you could convert, or you could stay and probably be killed. So uh, that's pretty much what happened here. 
No, I think uh, what you just mentioned, I mean, you were touching on the what the Native Americans didn't have. I mean, why in your book, you actually break this down very well into four distinct periods. Um, I think this is a, a good transition to kind of go over those periods. How how did we start with the Native American cuisine and how did we end up where we are today? Um, and what does Native American cuisine look like today? Great. It's a great question. So the pre-contact period, uh, and in my research for my PhD, I only went back 10,000 years. And in the last oh years, um, they found footprints here in White Sands, New Mexico. And in the footprints that were fossilized was a moss. And that moss was radiocarbon dated. And now scientists are saying people were here 20 to 22,000 years. So Anyway, so pre-contact or pre-colonial goes back from very early, uh, somewhere between 10 and 22,000 years, uh, up until 1492 and that first contact. You know, and that included uh, both cultivated and wild plants as well as wild game uh, in the Native American diet. Um, and, you know, lots of wild plants, wild celery, wild carrots, wild herbs, wild onion, wild garlic, uh, then the cultivars, corn, beans, and squash, you know, corn goes back about 10,000 years in terms of cultivation. And then fruits and berries and nuts and greens and, you know, lots of, and lots of produce. Uh, and then also uh, the wild game. And then we use 1492 to delineate. Uh, we call that period the first contact period. So for instance, the Italian tomato is a first contact Italian food. The, the sheep that were introduced, which really embraced by Walter's tribe, although they did have, you know, mountain sheep, wild sheep that they uh, harvested, but the, the cultivated sheep that the Navajos now, uh, the Diné are very famous for their weaving. And so those sheep were introduced not only for their wool, but also for their meat. And probably the most famous is now the Navajo churro. But, you know, peaches were introduced, the, the stone fruits. Uh, Northern New Mexico is famous for its apples. So we see lots of apples and different kinds of apples here. We see uh, potatoes growing all over Northern New Mexico. Uh, and then we see things like radishes and cabbage, uh, all of which were introduced from Europe and other parts of the world. So those would become uh, first contact foods. And, you know, one of my favorite is uh, citrus. Uh, I think I've talked to Patrice about this in the past. Right now we're moving into the Karakar orange season, my favorite orange of all time. Um, and that was also introduced. So then later you got to see olives and citrus, uh, being introduced, you know, and over that trajectory from about 500 years, uh, all of these foods um, have adapted to the environment here. They grow very well here. And now we're famous for uh, many of these uh, foods in it, our farmers markets are bursting. Citrus were too cold, but areas like, you know, Arizona and California, Texas, you know, um, famous. And th that's an introduced, uh, you know, produce uh product that came that from was interesting Europe. too like and i think you mentioned this in your book as well it wasn't just the europeans bringing you know their foodstuffs from their native lands but they're also moving product around in the americas that weren't necessarily you know they found it in south america brought up to north america and you had that right. 
mix also happening. Also, right. Yeah. So pre-contact, first contact, then we have government issue. And in the case of Native Americans, um, you know, we move from the 1600s into the 1700s and then in the 1800s. And this is the most painful of U.S. history. Uh, we do see the Trail of Tears. The Cherokee Nation's actually split in two. Uh, the Eastern Band of Cherokee Indians remains in North Carolina or what is now North Carolina. And uh, the other uh, part of that band um, moves is moved forcibly, um, Trail of Tears, to Oklahoma. Walter's people have uh, the Long Walk. Um, and if you really were to look at every Native community, they all have a story of um, dislocation and losing their sense uh, their wild foods and how to grow and when to plant, where to harvest, how to harvest, what the seasons are, because the BIA has formed reservations, uh, the indigenous land that they could hunt and gather on shrunk. So uh, we call this period the government issue period. And we call it that because the government stepped in and issued these rations to Native people. Uh, it originally started with like, lard and flour, coffee, sugar, and then if you were lucky, uh, canned meats, including Spam or corned beef or pork, uh, maybe um, canned beans or dried beans. But uh, exactly healthy stuff. And I actually I love, the, I love the term, uh, the the words you use to describe this period in your book, you, you called it nutritional genocide. Right. And there, I couldn't think of a better way to describe it. Basically. Right. So, you know, how do you control people? The easiest way to control people is through food. Mm -hmm. And so the government issued just enough food so that Native people weren't starving to death, but never enough so that you weren't constantly hungry. Yeah. Right? And you strip but, identity as well. I mean, that's the, that, right. The trauma that's of the, uh, right. Of, uh -huh. and I, you know, I, I always try to paint a picture for our listeners, you know, just try to imagine what it would be like to be kicked out of, uh, you know, wherever you live today. And right. most people live where a lot of their ancestors have lived for the last, let's say, four or five generations. And right. just all of a sudden be moved to a completely different spot. You're not only stripped of your land that you've been familiar with for generations, but also now the food. I mean, it's just, it's, it's. The, and the cultural and family ties. Even if you live right. in an urban area, look at New York City, right? Everybody clustered together. So you have like Little Italy and you have Chinatown and you have, you know, all these different clusters of ethnic groups where people settled in, in different blocks. And so, yeah, it's, it was a very traumatic period. Um, and then where we are now, uh, so let's say, you know, from, you know, maybe as early as the 1980s, but let's say 1990s to be safe until now, uh, this new period called new Native American cuisine, where Native Americans from different communities are being classically trained equal to their European counterparts. Many Native chefs are doing very regional foods. Some are doing foods of the Americas, but each community for the first time in history gets to choose what's on their native plate and right. there's no rules some want fry bread from that government issue period some don't 
and uh, some restaurants are doing only pre-colonial or pre-contact foods on their menu. Some include the first contact and the pre-contact. So, you know, again, everybody is is deciding what's on the plate, but it's usually presented very beautiful. I know Chef Walter and I really love to focus on presentation. I think we eat with our eyes. We love mm -hmm. art. It's beautiful. Uh, and then taste and flavor. Um, and a big part of this is the re-indigenizing, re revitalizing, reinvigorating many of these produce. Uh, my book is plant-based, for instance. Uh, protein's really easy to add to anything. It's really hard sometimes, especially if you didn't grow up with some of these unique produce ingredients, how to make them taste good, how to get them to become part of a flavor profile. And so we really focused just on these eight plants and made some wonderful savory recipes and then if people want to add meat to that they can and if they want to go plant forward or 100 plant-based you know again that's completely up to them what i can say is that more and more and more and more doctors and health practitioners uh, including diabetes educators and community health representatives and uh, nurse practitioners. They're really encouraging all of us, not only native people, to eat plants. Mm -hmm. Plant okay. forward. We really got to learn our produce and eat plants. Uh, if your diet is brown and white, you're pretty much in trouble. They call it eat the rainbow. Uh, it was pointed out to me that Skittles now says that. So we're not meaning those little candies that are colored. We're meaning incorporating colorful produce uh, into your diet for health and wellness. No, it's 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 completely true. Um, I think it is amazing to see the rebirth and the relearning of of these foods that honestly have been around for, like you said, thousands of years before this you know, relatively uh, small period in history, really, you know, we're talking about a few hundred years, but in the context of how long the indigenous peoples were here for, it's a blip, but it's an impactful blip. So it is interesting to see these uh, rebirths and the refamiliarity of these uh, cultural heritage. Now, one thing I would like to uh, hear you talk a little bit about on before we go to break here is you mentioned within the new Native American cuisine period, uh, you talk a lot about the traditional ecological knowledge. And I thought that was also very interesting and in how you really do a good job using that concept to describe how the cuisine and the culture was passed down and how uh, this tool mm -hmm. kept basically these cultural traditions alive through these very turbulent, traumatic periods. Okay. So first, I want to just contextualize that everyone on this planet is indigenous to the earth. We are all earth people or, or earth citizens. So everyone is indigenous. And once we can get in touch with and in all of our lineages, we start to reclaim this indigeneity. Uh, we can then identify with something called TEK and TEK stands for traditional ecological knowledge, which is knowledge or wisdom that is perpetuated from the ancestors. It's usually handed down orally, although it can be handed down writtenly through generations. And uh, it's handed down through stories, songs, recipes, uh, songs, 
Um, and it becomes part of a physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual wellness. Now, every culture in the world have this. Sure. So if I were from the Northern Highlands of Scotland, where there's no trees, right? It's pretty much these flat and very rocky. I would know how to harvest peat, for instance, cure it, use it to heat my home, use it to cook my food, and use it to make some of the best whiskey in the world. But I'm not from there. So if I were just plunked in, I would not know that I would need a local and indigenous Scottish person to show me that. So native is the same way. So depending on where your tribal or your community, your tribal lineage or your community evolved, um, information was passed out how to plant corn how to harvest corn how to nixtamalize corn or make corn into ash corn so that it can be used in a tamale or into masa uh if i were on the east coast i would know how to harvest new york was filled with oysters there were so many oysters until the mid 1800s when they over harvested that i would know how to harvest an oyster if i were from there but i if i were a plains tribe i don't know how to harvest an oyster but i do know how to follow the bison and right hunt the bison use all of the bison or what some people may know of as buffalo uh for not only clothing and shelter and food etc where do we harvest the roots where do we harvest how do we grow when do you plant like here in new mexico we're supposed to start planting june 1st because every memorial day weekend we get a hailstorm, and if you put those babies in the ground that hail pummeled it and you got to replant happens almost every year. I don't know what it is about this region. So again, that's knowledge that's passed down that we need to know. And if you moved here, you'd be like, oh, it seems warm enough. It's May 15th. I'm going to plant all my little babies that I started inside and babied. And then they get pummeled and killed and you have no tomatoes and no chilies and no corn and no beans and no squash, etc. So again, you know, it really is about this knowledge of the land and the landscape and the ecosystem and the environment. Uh, and that's TEK. And it's it's um, every single culture, every culture group has has this. Yeah, no, that's that's very true. And um, I think obviously with with the indigenous Americans, it's probably even more critical the the success of TEK because again, when a lot of these European settlers did come here or conquerors or well, however we want to label them, they did uh, obviously destroy a lot of uh, written work and documented um, materials from these cultures. So uh, I think it's just that much more fascinating to see uh, cultures that have successfully been preserved through this method that you just described about passing down through song, story, and food. Right. And, you know, winter, uh, right, you're so you have the seasons. Winter was always the time to regenerate, tell stories, use up the dried foods, right? Spring you plant, summer you cultivate and then harvest. Fall is really about harvest, drying and preparing for winter. And then the cycle starts again. You know, and I think many chefs and many uh, people now are starting to eat seasonally. Yes, can we go to the store and buy tomatoes in the middle of February? Yeah, but are they tasty? I My tomatoes are August, September, and um, I've shifted. I have local farms and farmers, and 
I'm buying 150 pounds a week for four weeks, about 600 pounds and canning them so that in February, instead of going and buying mealy, unflavorful tomatoes that are shipped in from who knows where, I am opening my local Santa Fe, Northern New Mexico jars of heirloom orange tomatoes or yellow tomatoes or harvested at the peak of their season with the best flavor in the world. And so, you know, I've developed and devised ways to extend freezing's another great way, drying's another great way, the season for these produce so that we can eat more of a seasonal diet. Absolutely. Well, I think that is a great point to take a break on. And when we return, we're going to delve into a little more specifics about four of those magic eight crops. So uh, we'll be right back. JGLC, the place to be, a third generation family owned and operated asset based company. Throughout their 60 years in business, integrity, reliability, and loyalty to their customers has remained their top priority. JGLC guarantees 24-7 communication with your personal logistics coordinator. They offer competitive pricing without sacrificing services. They operate throughout the United States and Canada. JGLC's customers count on them for dependability and dedication carried out on every order, every time. 60 years of service for all your trucking needs. Visit them at JGLC.com for your custom quote. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the History of Fresh Produce. We are here still with Lois, and now we have Walter joining us. Just before break, we finished off uh, the timeline of how the Native American cuisine has evolved from the period of pre-contact all the way until today. And as um, Lois listed off at the beginning, there's these four magic egg crops that have really uh made a huge influence around the world. And we thought we would take some time to delve into a little more specifics of four of those crops. Um, and the one crop that Lois and I had been discussing before uh, <coughs> it started was corn. Now, uh, our regular listeners will know that we did a whole episode on corn, so we're not going to go we too much into the history. But the one hmm. product when I was reading the book uh, was tamale. And Lois, I was fascinated to learn just how uh, diverse uh, of a food tamale is and how many different ways you can make it. And I guess a good place to start is explain to us what tamale is and the historical background of it. Because I, I understand there was also a pretty fascinating history to, to the tamale as well. Right. So tamale is made from a masa, and that masa is a nixtamalized corn. So here in what is now the United States, many native communities would refer to it as ash corn. Uh, some of you out there may know it as hominy corn, but it's corn that's been treated. The ash is very alkaline. So when the corn is soaked in the ash or cooked in the ash, the skins come off and then you could take those kernels and dry them. And then when you reconstitute them, they puff. Uh, if you were to take those same kernels and grind them into a masa, that masa is called masa arena or corn masa, and that's used for tamales. So a tamale can have a blue corn masa, it can have a white corn masa. Um, probably many of you know a traditional tamale with a white corn. Um, that's the most popular and easiest to uh, use this process, also called to the south of us nixtamalized corn. But Walter's tribe does a version with fresh corn. 
So, you know, the tamale is a wrapped bundle in a corn husk, uh, a dried corn husk. I always say that the dried corn husks are the Native American aluminum foil, right? You can uh, use it to wrap mm -hmm. anything and put it on the grill or steam it or boil it or bake it. Uh, and so we do do that with this masa and other ingredients like corn beans and squash or mushrooms. Uh, you could use meat. You could make dessert. Oh, yum, 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 yum. And uh, I'm going to let Walter talk a little bit about one version that's in the book. And why don't you tell them what the name of that is in your language and uh, how you would make that? Well, in my language, is um, we call it Nitsitakoa. means like a, a kneel down bread that we... Um, you build the fire, and then when you get the charcoal, then you remove the charcoal to the side, and you dig, um, do a little pit like you know, and then you put those um, the, um, the same way as you do like tamales, and you put it in, in the ground, and then you recover it, and then um, then later you undo it and remove the the ash and the, the fire, and you put that to a side, then that's when you um pull all the, the um, what's baked underneath the, the ground. Mm -hmm. And then the, the, the flavor of that smoke, that gives a, a real, a nice sweet flavor to that. Yeah. It can be used in the white or blue corn, whatever you have in, in, in that sense. And if people can't dig a, a, a hole in the ground and cook in, in a pit, they could do it in their oven, right? Mm -hmm. That's what we did. We yeah. translated it and then Walter modernized it even more. So he has one version with the traditional way of making it with just corn, but then he added some fruit. So uh, you added apples and uh, raisin, yeah. whatever on fruits that you Currants, have. Yeah. And so I, I came out with that because a lot of our traditional food became commercialized to where it became I always try to go back to the how more natural mm -hmm. if you want sugar and I see people start using sugar and you know we combining our sacred food and so I, I try to go back to that will be our sweetness that will be yeah. our sugar the fruit you know that's something that we we use utilize it in that way so you don't need to add, add sugar right. you use the, yeah so it that that's a a really good one for people and and yeah that's a really and then you know if you, if you want to make a sauce on the side that's what i usually do yeah i, I do a prickly pear sauce or corn or, or sauce corn sauce yeah peach you know peach that, sauce that, that, yeah. that sauce go further yeah. go, go yeah, yeah. Make Walter, it yeah he's the he's the king of sauces so he loves sauces i love sauces too but yeah well, if our oh, listeners haven't we, eaten already, they're oh, definitely savory sauce, mm -hmm. a red chili sauce, or a green chili sauce, or a guajillo chili sauce. Yeah, so you could go either on the sweet side for dessert mm -hmm. or on the uh, mm. savory side for you know a main dish or an entree. So definitely versatile. We love tamales. Yeah, mm -hmm. versatile. No, it definitely is. And it, what's interesting too, and I think Walter, you know, mentioned the word sacred. That this tamale had such a sacred. Uh, uh, origin story with it being such a sacred food. It was food of the gods, right? And it, and I guess going to that point where I was uh, interested to see that there were so many different types of tamales, I understood also that that different tamales were related to different gods. So yeah. Yeah. again, that just that cultural connection to the foods, which is, is so fascinating, even within just the one food, just tamale, the different layers uh, of connection. Yeah. And so 
Moving on to another one of these four, squash. Squash, I think. Right, so there's actually eight. Magic eight, but we're you're focusing on four. Correct. Okay. We're only going on four. Right, okay. Unfortunately, that would probably be, take a whole other episode to go through them. All. <laughs> they all have such fascinating histories. But um, squash is, is an interesting one, too. I think squash is obviously has become so also embedded in modern culture um, amongst, you know, especially here in the state side. Um, tell us a little bit about, um, you know, same thing about what the significance of the squash was um, for the Native Americans and how you have uh, evolved this crop into today. So squash is really interesting because it was always delineated into summer squash, right? Grown during the summer where you eat the outside. That's how we uh, have uh, delineated um, the two squashes. And then winter squash, which has a hard outer shell that you don't eat. For instance, uh, acorn or pumpkin or butternut. Some of those skins are edible and some people do eat them, but for the most part, they don't. You eat the inside. Whereas zucchini or Mexican squash or yellow squash, you eat the whole thing. Right. So there's, we delineate by saying winter squash and summer squash. And, you know, in the past, Native people were able to harvest these squashes and winter squash could winter over for months. So you would maybe, uh, people would identify with something like a root cellar, right? You would dig down into the ground, past the frost level, and you could store or build a little adobe house, right? Mm -hmm. And then that would become your squash house or your food house, and you could store these foods. It would get cold, but it wouldn't freeze. And then you could use them, you know, sometimes, depending on the weather, all the way into March, April, or May. We've wintered over squash as long as March, April, or May. So, uh, yeah, you know, and just uh, the other day, we had the delicious uh, maple syrup with a little chili and fresh sage butternut baked squash. Uh, oh, so good. Just, that was like the main course. Um, I have to see what we exactly called it, but didn't you like that? Wasn't that mm -hmm. a good, good dish? What's another good squash wall that you like? Uh, th there's a squash soup. Uh, oh, the four directions. That's kind of a good one for you. What the else? Squash also obviously has a, is, is like you say at the beginning of our episode is one of those key crops, you know, including not only the magic eight that you described, but the three sisters, right? So this is, and I think even within the three sisters, I think you mentioned this in your book as well, that it was planted even long before all the other three sisters. So this is like one of the, the key, key, uh, yeah, we call it the spice roasted butternut squash was the one we ate. But uh, and I think seasonally that it's a delicacy and really very few other ethnic groups other than native. Uh, the Italians do do this is the stuffed squash blossoms. Mm. Oh, it's one of my most favorite things uh, to do only in the summer. And here, you know, our season's very limited. There's only, you know, anywhere from two to six weeks where those blossoms are being sold, uh, always the male, uh, because in the squash patch, the female blossoms immediately turn to the fruit. So if hmm. you harvest them, you're harvesting the squash. Right. But the male blossoms job is to pollinate. So as long as you leave a couple in that squash patch, the bees do the rest. And then you can harvest the remainder of those blossoms. They hold their form. They can be stuffed and fried or baked, oh, put mm -hmm. in soups or salads. They're really good. 
I haven't had uh, squash blossoms yet, but after I was reading your book and I came across, it, I said, "Wow, that's interesting. That's that's something I got to try at some point." So we'll have to add that to the list. Hopefully, if I'm able to to get my hands on that one day. But um, well, another- and so, yeah, there are produce companies now that will ship you just yes, a kit. Right. I saw that as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Amazing. It's definitely a, a a specialty produce item. That's right. Yeah, I mean, so squash, obviously, again, a a very historic, um, significant crop in in the lineup here. Um, now, what I thought would be interesting uh, for the last two is <laughs> crops that people obviously today, if they hear what I'm going to say, that the crops I'm going to start with one of them, they're going to automatically think desserts, but they have a much different origin story than desserts. Um, the one, the first one we're going to talk about is vanilla, and vanilla. From when, again, through your book and some other research, I was fascinated to learn just again how it again wasn't used as a as a dessert ingredient. Um, the Totonax considered it a sacred herb. Was used in ritual offerings as a perfume, as medicine. It was just rarely used for flavoring, which is fascinating, and. And I'm sure uh, you both know this legend as well. And I'm, I'm, I'd be interested if you're able to tell a short version of it. But I thought the, the legend of Princess Zanet was also a very um, interesting story involving the origins of vanilla within the Totonac um, culture. Right. So you know, um, first I'm going to just say that uh, vanilla is fascinating because it's the smallest seed in the world. Mm. There's nothing smaller than a vanilla seed, which is the black speck in the vanilla. If you buy like a vanilla bean paste or or harvest that pod, Uh, how the ancestors knew that this orchid that grows uh, originating in uh, what is now Mexico um, from an orchid. It's one of the only parts of an orchid that's edible, that's only fertile from approximately four to 24 hours. There's a special bee that lives only in Mexico that harvests the vanilla and everywhere else in the world where now vanilla has been grown like uh, Madagascar or Tahiti or Indonesia or areas where it's being grown, they have to hand harvest. That bee doesn't exist there. Wow. So uh, it's 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 got this, interesting history, not only then we look at the cultural history, which is, you know, uh, um, this goddess that fell in love with a a mortal. And um, that's a big no-no, right? In the the world of gods and goddesses. (laughs) And so she was uh, forbidden to marry him because of her divine nature, because she was a goddess. And so she turned herself into vanilla to please him because she, the essence, and if you've ever smelled vanilla, I mean, now we have vanilla candles and imitation vanilla. It's, I think, the most synth, scientifically synthesized, uh, you know, um, spice or scent in the world. And, uh, you know, uh, there's a festival to this day just to celebrate this essence. Mm. And, you know, vanilla's lovely. It's got flavor undertones and you can smell it and you know it 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 affects the olfactory sensation not only on your taste buds but in your nose and and many people just ah that aroma you know and yes it is associated primarily with dessert but uh 
you know, we use it um, in a spritzer. We also use it, uh, you know, rubbed on a peach or in a peach sauce or right. in a bread pudding or in a tamale. I mean, um, wow, right? Yeah. And it was vanilla, because um, like we just discussed, it was it was a, a sacred herb and a, an offering and a perfume. At what point did vanilla start to get incorporated as a food? Was that because of European encounters that it started integrating more into the foods, or did that come even before European uh, interventions? Oh, so native people have always used it in, uh, you know, foods. It was Europeans that um, began to use it first only with chocolate. So vanilla and chocolate, we call the sweet sisters because they've always been used, you know, but, uh, you know, we go back to one of the queens um, in uh, parts of, uh, in Europe and um, one of the chefs in one of the courts used vanilla outside, like in a minced meat pie or in a dough. And um, then it was from then on, it's a standalone ingredient. Uh, outside of its association with its sister chocolate or cacao. Okay. Okay. Well, that's a perfect transition to uh. To, uh, to the fourth one that we're going to talk about, which is cacao. And um, similar to to the, to the vanilla, it was also a, a sacred plant, uh, this time to the Almecs and the Izapans and the Mayas and the Toltecs and the Aztecs and the Incas. And um, interesting with the Aztecs, um, so they believed it was a gift from their god Quetzalcoatl, which is the patron of agriculture, and they used cacao as uh, as part of a highly prized drink that was consumed just by the elite. Right, you had to be a chief or a royal in the court, and it was a sacred drink that connected one to the divine. And interestingly, like you were talking about with vanilla, you no, know, having that pairing with um, cacao, um, the Aztecs received vanilla as tribute from the Totonacs. And then went on to combine the vanilla with the cacao to flavor the food and the drinks. And I think they even say that you can trace the very beginnings of maybe hot chocolate with the right. Aztecs. That's what I was just going to say. Yeah. <laughs> hot vanilla. chocolate. Who doesn't love a cup of oh, yeah. hot cocoa? Walter <laughs> loves it, right? Now we can buy it in a powder. You can make it from scratch, but it's delicious. You can make it with whole milk. You can make it with plant-based milk. You can, you know... Uh, Yum. You can add it to coffee. You can add it to an elixir. Oh, you can add it to chili. Oh, yum, 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 yum. Yeah. Right. So it's not Swiss people. It's not <laughs> Swiss origins. It's it's from a very, very deep origins in uh, Native American cultures. Um, right. In your book, I thought one thing that was interesting with cacao um, as an ingredient or as a food is mole. Now I am I was somewhat familiar with mole before reading your book, but not too much. And I think that's a, a great example of cacao and chocolate not being used necessarily as a dessert, but right. in, integrating with a savory meal. So I'd be interested to learn a little bit of what or how did mole um, come to be within the Native American culture and how is that being used today? in the new Native American cuisine. Right. So, you know, uh, we actually have a restaurant here in town uh, with a chef that's from Mexico and he's famous for his moles. And, you know, mole really translates to mean sauce. Mm. 
So, and it's a sauce that's not a condiment. Like salsa is a condiment, right? You would put that on the table and sprinkle it a lot. Mole is the foundation. You can cook meat or fish in it. You can put it with rice or vegetables or beans. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so, you know, mole was a sauce that has developed over time. And oddly enough, um, most people think that chocolate is the single common ingredient in all moles, but it's actually the chili. Right. Chili is in all moles, but not all moles have chocolate. The one we do has cacao. It's lovely because it's full bodied. It's not too hot, not too sweet. And we did a great event. Remember mm-hmm. last summer where we catered um, uh, actually a, a young gentleman's uh um, bar mitzvah, and he was transitioning. You know that's the very important in Jewish tradition. And uh, his, um, uh, I think, mother or father was from um, Argentinian, and so they brought in some other flavors into this meal because they had visiting relatives, and it was lovely. You know, you can serve it. Uh, it was just. Um, it freezes well. It's a great all-around sauce. You could do it with eggs. You could put it on a burrito. Yummy, right? Just it's a great. You use it back on yeah. the reservation mm-hmm. too. Yeah. Yeah, it's definitely an interesting sauce. I know the few times I've had it, it's just it's a totally different experience than a chocolate in the form of a dessert kind of food. But it has a very unique um, eating experience and just the tones and the and how it interacts with the other savory ingredients. So it's it's uh, it's a fascinating thing. Um, no, I think, um, look, we could talk obviously longer and much longer, even going into the other four crops that we didn't touch on today. Um, but I think definitely everybody should pick up this book. Uh, we've had a few authors and historians now on on our show that have written beautiful books, not only talk about the history of the foods, but recipes. So you can make a lot of the foods uh, that are talked and discussed and referenced uh, through history in these books. And this is definitely one of them. Um, Seat to plate, soil to sky. Um, Also beautiful photographs, which I assume Lois, you did as well. We did it together, Uh, Walter. Okay, Walter. Yeah, we had a digital expert. We had a team. Uh, I had the vision. Walter would style the food, and then we had someone making, you know, two or three versions following the recipe, and then just managing uh, the files for the cookbook alone. You know, we produced over twenty-two thousand images that we then have to manage. So, lots in our digital files now uh, that didn't make it into the book, but. Yeah. Well, it's it's a beautiful book. Um, again, highly recommend everyone to pick it up uh, if you like uh, fresh produce and fresh plants in your in your uh, foods and want to have fun and learn new ways to do it. And a again steeped in history of Native American culture. So, um, thanks so much, uh, Lois and Walter, for joining us. Um, and until next time, I'm John Papp. We'll see you soon.